We are currently teaching through what is probably the most famous sermon in all of Scripture and definitely the most well-known of Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And some consider it really the epitome of the teachings of Jesus. And because of that, the essence of Christianity. Now, this sermon is Jesus' answer to the universal philosophical and religious quest and question, how can a person truly be happy? Or how do we experience the good life? And I think if you were to summarize the teaching of this sermon in you know, maybe two words or two themes, it would be flourishing or blessing, and it would be human wholeness. And that's really interesting to think that this is the epitome of what Christianity is. Flourishing and human wholeness is that this is in fact what God has and what God wants for humans. He wants our flourishing. He wants our wholeness. Now, we've said before, but I just think it's so good to make it clear right up front, this sermon is not rules that get you into the kingdom of God, right? Scripture makes it very clear that God has invited us into his kingdom because Jesus, Messiah, has made that way possible through his own life, death, and resurrection, through his eternal reign over heaven and earth. Even now, we are invited into the kingdom of God. Anyone is welcome in that kingdom. This sermon is also not unattainable standards just to get us to see that we can't possibly keep the rules so we should stop trying. Some have relegated the Sermon on the Mount to this. So you come to the sermon and just think, oh, you know, the whole point of the sermon is just to tell you you can't do it, so forsake all doing and just trust in Jesus. Now, why would Jesus waste his time giving us this sermon if that was the point of it? This sermon is also not rules of how we have to behave if we are to stay in the kingdom of God. It is so much deeper than that. This sermon is not just a vision of what life will be like one day when God physically reigns on earth, what we call the coming kingdom of God. I believe what Jesus is saying is this in the Sermon on the Mount. Now that I am here, God's new world is coming into being. The kingdom is here, is what Jesus says before he preaches this sermon. Remember, and he demonstrates the transformative power of the kingdom of God. And then he proceeds to describe the characteristics, the type of people who belong to the kingdom of God. And once we realize that, we'll see that these are the habits of heart which anticipate God's new world here and now. So these qualities, purity of heart, mercy, and so on, are not things that you have to do to earn a reward, nor are they they some kind of payment or sacrifice you make to God, nor are they merely the rules of conduct now that you become a Christian, but they are signs of life. They are the language that they speak in the kingdom of God, and we are called to learn that language and speak that language now as representatives of God's kingdom. 
I love this quote, and we've been using it, I think, almost each week just to kind of frame the Sermon on the Mount, but it's from Joachim Jeremiah, and he says this, what Jesus teaches in the sayings collected in the Sermon on the Mount is not a complete regulation of the life of disciples, and it's not intended to be. Rather, what is taught here are symptoms, signs, examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, which is still under sin, death, and the devil. You yourself should be signs of the coming kingdom of God, signs that something has already happened. Now, Jesus' sermon is really not so much about doing as it is about being. I don't think Jesus is saying, become who you should be, but he's actually saying, become who you are. We are the children of God. We are the people of the promise. So grow into that identity. Grow into that way of being as a follower of Jesus. Now, this sermon of Jesus has been used for centuries to shape the people of God, to form them into the way of Jesus and the way of God's kingdom. And we are believing that that's exactly what God will do for us as we take in this teaching as we come and we sit at the feet of Jesus, our teacher, Jesus, our master. Now, this sermon begins with nine pronouncements of blessing or what we have interpreted as flourishing. And this comes, of course, from the Latin beatus, which nobody uses, and so it's just like this like, funky thing that we always have to like, transliterate what this actually means. But we're just talking about this deep sense of being at peace. You could translate Jesus' word here, shalom, which is this huge biblical word about experiencing peace with God, about experiencing peace in your own psyche. It's about experiencing peace with everyone around you. It's about being at peace with creation itself. It's this kind of whole person peace. You could also describe this as joyful, because what's being described here is actually a life that can go through all of life's difficulties and still remain unmoved, right? What's being described here is what the psalmist talks about. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly and so on and so forth, but their delight is in the law of the Lord and in his word they meditate day and night. They shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth fruit in each season. And whatever they do, will prosper. This is the kind of flourishing, this is the kind of good life that this sermon is offering. Now, the Beatitudes, like the rest of wisdom literature and scripture, are an invitation. They're an invitation to consider what the best way of being in the world is and to pursue it. True flourishing is a life, then, that is lived in light of the eternal reign of God, God's kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus claims is here and now and at work through him. And so each week we are hearing these invitations from Jesus to his disciples, to his people, to become what we are. Now, that might include some of us turning from what we're doing to 
turn to specifically follow and obey Jesus. There will be work. There will be things to do. But ultimately, it's not about doing. It's about being. It's about living in this identity as the children of God. Now, I've warned before, and I should just say it again, Jesus's view of flourishing, Jesus's view of the good life is topsy-turvy. It is upside down. It is counter-cultural stuff. And so we have to lean into Jesus. We have to meditate. We have to press in to really understand his vision of flourishing. Now we pick up this morning in the sixth beatitude, and it reads like this, flourishing are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So the question is, what does it mean to be pure in heart? Now, the scriptures speak of purity of heart in many places, but there is one specific passage that connects purity of heart with this vision of God. And no doubt, Jesus' audience would have been familiar with what he was saying when he pronounced this blessing. Some of you might be familiar with Psalm 24. It reads this way, "'Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place?' The answer, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Now, for the people of God, there was no greater aspiration, no greater goal for humanity than to behold the face of Yahweh, to see God and to stand in his presence. You might remember David, the great king and musician, he wrote a song declaring that his sole desire was to look upon the beauty of Yahweh. He says this, one thing I ask from the Lord. This only do I seek. So he has one sole desire, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Or there's another place David writes that he would rather be the doorkeeper in the house of God than have any place of honor in this world. Now, in Jewish understanding, it was only those who were pure, according to the law of Moses, that could enter the temple and enter into the presence of Yahweh. And even that was exclusive, right? It was not just the people of God. They could come into the outer courts, but it was only the priest who could actually enter into the holy place and only the high priest that could enter into the holy of holy places and only once a year. And they had to go through all of these washings, these ceremonial washings, these bathings, just to make sure I'm pure, I'm clean. There's no blemish or stain in me. So the Jews made it their goal to keep up this ritual purity, these washings, cleansing rituals, sacrifice, and so on, with this one aim of beholding the face of the Lord. But Jesus here 
does not say those who have been ceremonial cleansed according to the law of Moses shall see God, or that those who practice or keep the law of Moses shall see God. He says those who are pure in heart, those are the ones that shall see God. Now, I think that Christians automatically think of purity in association with sexual purity. Am I right? How many times have you read this and been like, oh, man, shoot, right? If I don't get my act together, I'm not going to see God. And we kind of just relegate this to be sexual purity or sexual morality. So when we think of this purity, we think in terms of strict holiness, purity from sin and guilt. But Jesus doesn't say pure, you know, flourishing are the sexually pure or pure in body, hands or feet. He says Flourishing are the pure in heart. So what does that mean? What does it actually mean to be pure in heart? Now, in Jewish understanding, we have to, under, we have to know this, that the heart is literally the human center. The heart is actually who you are, right? So we, you know, have this way, you know, even uh, you must, you know, here Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And we think, oh, like the scripture actually has this like different breakdown of the view of the person, and there's all these different facets to the person. Actually, what the Hebrew is reiterating again and again and again in that commandment is you shall love God with all of your being, all of your being, all of your being, all of your being. It's reiterating it again and again and again. The heart is actually who we are, the home of personal feeling, will, and thinking. The heart is the core. And so what Jesus is saying here, the way we could translate it is this, flourishing are those who are clear at the center. Flourishing are those who are whole in heart, whole in person, for they shall see God. Peter Lightheart, he put it this way, purity of heart then means a complete and single-minded devotion to God that is rooted in the heart or person, but expresses itself in everything we do. Now, I believe that what Jesus is getting after here is what we often see in religious observance that it is possible to have an outward-facing life of doing and saying the right things, but inside still being filled with so much selfishness, uh, being filled with pride, greed, lust, and all kinds of jealousy. And remember, the highly religious people of Israel's day, or excuse me, in Jesus' day, the highly religious people of Israel, we know them as the Pharisees, they concern themselves primarily with an outward observation of the law of Moses. Their righteousness, their right doing, was concerned about keeping the rules, staying ceremonial clean, fasting and prayer, but, and this all comes from Jesus, right? He says, forfeiting, forgetting what the whole law was after all along. Mercy, justice, righteousness, doing what is right, love and care 
for the worthless person. Jesus later has a stern rebuke for these religious leaders recorded in Matthew 23, where he says as much. Now, Jesus isn't actually saying anything new here. Probably not in this sermon anywhere. Yahweh said this many times through the voice of the prophets. Listen to one place in Amos 5, verses 21 through 24. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies stink. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I'm not listening to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. What was going on in the time of the prophets, specifically Amos, we find this in Isaiah as well, is the people of Israel were claiming through their outward observance, their sacrifices of worship, God, we're with you. We're your people. We're about the things that you're about. And what God is saying is, no, you aren't. You're not with me. You're not devoted to me because if you were, there would be a flood of justice. Righteousness would literally be flowing from your life. And what Scripture points us to again and again and again is that knowing God, love of God will always express itself in love of neighbor. And when there is a disconnect, what it shows is a divided heart or a divided person. So let's talk for a minute about wholeness of person or wholeness of being. Now, it's interesting to note that this beatitude follows directly after hungering for righteousness and being merciful. I think these two characteristics are done not as tasks, as I've said many times, to be fulfilled or boxes to be checked, but because that is the kind of people that God's people are because we have been radically touched by the grace of God or the love of God. Now, something that we need to be aware of as we seek to apply this sermon in the Beatitudes is to think or to say what God cares about is the heart or, you know, just the spiritual, the inner being, so we don't have to worry about the work or the practice. And this is actually what uh, many Christians have done. They just swing the pendulum to the other side, thinking, well, we're saved by faith and not by works. But what Jesus is talking about is being a whole person in both works and faith, in both actions and in motives, in mind, body, and heart. Remember, the hypocrite, or excuse me, the Pharisees are not considered hypocrites because they don't do the right things. They actually do. Jesus says this, you tithe mint and cumin and anise and these things, but you forget the weightier things of the law. And he says, you should have done it all. 
The problem with the Pharisees isn't that they don't do the right things. They do them, but they are hypocrites because their hearts, their motives are wrong. They do it for all the wrong reasons. They do it for praise and recognition, not because they're like God, not because they care about the things God cares about, and it's simply flowing from within them. In behavior, they are righteous, but inwardly, remember what Jesus says, you are like dead men's bones. It's rotten and putrid within. The inward person must match the outward person, or according to Scripture, it is not true righteousness or virtue. One of the most fascinating parables in all of Scripture to me is the parable of the sheep and the goats. You guys familiar with that one? It says, you know, when the Son of Man comes, you know, he will judge the nations and he will put, um, you know, divide all people and he will separate the sheep from the goats. And it's super fascinating to me what Jesus the Lord says to the goats. Remember, because they're like, oh, Lord, we did this, and we did this, and we did this, and we did this. They are so very aware of themselves. The fascinating thing is that when Jesus speaks to the righteous, he says, I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was in prison, and you visited me. And what do they say? Lord, when did we do that? This is what true virtue and true righteousness is, that we do our righteousness and we aren't even aware of it because it actually flows from us. That it's not like, okay, well, i got to be kind to people and uh, I need to be forgiving because the Bible says, uh, you know what, and we do this kind of stuff. And of course, there is, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, there are points and times in our lives where we actually have to take hold of ourselves and say, okay, I am going to stop doing this action. I'm going to pay attention to my heart motives, and I'm going to redirect them in the way of God. But that's not something that I do for the rest of my life. I don't walk around with a Bible in my hand as I go to work and do these things just to make sure that I'm doing what the Scripture says. No, God's Spirit is at work in me, and He has given me a new heart Ezekiel and Jeremiah talk about this, a clean heart, a pure heart, an undivided heart to know the Lord. And the commandments of God are written on our hearts. I don't need to look up scripture in verse because it's here. The Spirit is working it into me and working it into you and creating a whole person. This is what this sermon is after. Remember, we'll talk about this in a couple weeks. Jesus says, do all this so that you may be like your Father in heaven who causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, the deserving and the undeserving. Can you imagine the sun like closing its light to people? No, this is the point, right? 
The sun is not discriminate in who it shines its light on. Neither is God discriminate in who he shines his goodness on. Neither shall his people be discriminate in who they love and show mercy towards, who they have compassion on, because it flows from within us, because we are the children of God. That's what this is all about. See, again, Jesus is not necessarily asking us to do more, though actions and acts of righteousness will be part of the journey. He is first and foremost calling us to become his righteous people, become what you are. The single-hearted devotion, this whole person transformation, is to be the primary object of our attention and our disciplines. Jesus is here and elsewhere in the Gospels telling us not to make a show of our piety, not to advertise our holiness to those around us, rather than focusing or obsessing on how we are perceived by others, what they think about us. We are to strive to work for a deep correspondence between our motivations, thoughts, and convictions, and the self that we present to the world around us. In fact, Jesus says our righteousness must surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, many times people have read that and thought, oh, well, that's because it's God's imputed righteousness. And let me just say, yes, God's imputed, let's say, and infused righteousness. That's what the Pharisees lack. It is not a whole person righteousness that they are living out. Now, some searching questions for our, you know, our own purity of heart to take maybe our spiritual pulse this morning would be questions like this. Just who are you when no one is around? Right? I mean, that's a simple one. Okay, like, Am I a different person around my family than I am at work? Am I a different person uh, when I come to the gatherings of God's people than I am when I'm just out with my friends? Who am I really? Do I engage in Christian action and devotion to Jesus, both in private and in public? Here's another one that's very searching. Am I selective in those I love, forgive, and show mercy toward. Oh yeah, I practice the way of Jesus all time, but not toward these people. Because you don't know what that person has done to me. You know what, in a sense, it's not about what that person has done to you. It's about you. In a sense, it is. It's about you becoming what God has purchased you to become. Are you going to allow one individual to hinder you? from becoming the image of God that Jesus Christ has purchased you to be? This person is actually controlling your life in a way that they should not have any power to control. Forgiveness is as much for my neighbor as it is for my own soul. Are we selective in our righteousness and justice that we deal out? These would all be evidences of a divided heart. See, what the Spirit of God forms and fashions in His people is unity of person. He forms whole people. The pure in heart are those without mixed motives. 
They do not do things because there's something in it for them. They don't do the right thing because people are looking and it will boost their popularity or people's view of them. They do it because that's the kind of people that they are. Because God's Spirit is in them and at work in them, transforming them to look like Yahweh, to look like Jesus, to bear His image. God is making us, church, into whole people. People of character. And you know what, honestly, just for a moment, can I say, I think this is a huge issue in the evangelical church. We've cared much more about, you know, keeping the denominational rules. Like, do you look like me? Do you dress like me? Do you vote like me? And we have not focused on the deeper issue of Christ-like character. This is the light that lights the world. This is the salt that salts the earth. I'm sorry, it's not the way you vote. It just isn't. Jesus never voted. Guess what? He changed the world and is continuing to change the world. And yet we have like focused on this like minutia. It's almost like what the prophet says, like, gosh, you highly esteem the things of men and you have forgotten the things of God. This is what God cares about, making us into people who actually do mercy, justice, righteousness, peacemaking, kindness, service, feeding, helping, caring, healing, speaking truth from within, because that's the kind of people we are. It's the kind of people we have become because God's own spirit, he himself is at work in us. Wholeness of person or single devotion is one of the key ideas, if not the key idea to this whole sermon of Jesus. The disciple is one whose dedication or allegiance to Yahweh is total singular. And Jesus will later contrast, right, these doing righteous deeds, either to be seen by humans or to be seen by God, laying up Foolish, destroyable treasure on earth rather than imperishable treasure in the kingdom of heaven. All of this speaks to the necessity of single devotion of an undivided heart. So the question is, okay, how do I work towards this? This at least means that followers of Jesus must see to it that we continually keep company with Jesus. You guys, this is why I am constantly on and on about your own discipleship to Jesus. I cannot be a disciple for you. I cannot make you a disciple. And I'm not like highlighting myself like I'm some, you know, like spiritual guru. But this is not the job of any person in your life. I think there's a time in our, you know, own Christian history where we thought, I need to find somebody to disciple me. The Spirit of God is discipling you. The community of God's people are discipling you. If one individual invests into your life, kudos. That's amazing, right? But you have to take your discipleship into your own hands. You have to be with Jesus. I can't do that for you. And you can't have my relationship with Jesus, and I can't have your relationship with Jesus. That would be the weirdest thing in the whole world, right? It's like if you try to have my friendship with Jordan Taylor. We've known each other since we were 11. Good luck, right? We're super tight. We think a lot of the same things. We're like, you know, 
hand in glove all the time, and like you come and be like, oh, I want Char's relationship with Jordan. Like all, first of all, like super weird. <laughs> Secondly, it's just not possible. But you yourself can cultivate a friendship and maybe even a deep, deep friendship with Jordan Taylor. And by the way, he's a great guy. Maybe you should. Um, but all this to say, right, like we try to do this. We want somebody else's relationship with Jesus or like, like through them that I can actually know Jesus. It, it just doesn't work like that. You must be with Jesus. You must practice the way of Jesus. You must become like Jesus. Have you taken your discipleship into your own hands? Are you keeping company with Jesus? Now, in keeping company with Jesus, right, it's this practice of inward and outward devotion to Jesus. Repenting when we find ourselves only going through the motions without engaging our whole person or by examining our hearts when our actions are not lining up with what we say we believe. In times like these, we pray along with the psalmist, unite my heart to fear your name. God, I feel this like disconnect between what I'm, you know, what I actually believe. I know this is true. I'm committed in my mind, but I don't feel it. My desires are not there. How many of you guys have this issue? Is this, I know this isn't just a char thing. One sister in the back. There we go. Right? This is true of all of us. If Jesus does have the religious leaders of his day in mind, and I think he does, then I believe it's helpful, helpful for us to think through our own Christian practice and the observance as a place where we work this out. So let's just give one example. Each week we gather together and we observe this sacrament, communion at the Lord's table. And we're invited to come and to receive and apply Jesus' grace and forgiveness. We talk about, man, have a conversation with Jesus. Meet the Lord. Share with him your burdens and what's going on. But listen, church, if we harbor unforgiveness and bitterness in our hearts while trying to receive the grace and forgiveness of the Lord, do you know what we do? We tear our being in two. I actually say that what I do with my hands and my body has no correlation with my inner being. That is not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is whole person transformation. But through these practices, we often do this, right? We go through the motion, we go through the ritual some of you come out of highly liturgical churches, and liturgy isn't bad. Sacraments are not bad, but when they are divorced from the heart, when there is no clear explanation of these things and you just go through the motions, this is what it does. It tears mind and heart into, and it divides the person. But the observance and practice of communion at the Lord's table is only one example of this. It can be true in many ways. We can make any of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit into empty cliches when we don't actually live them out and practice them. Right? We can have them embroidered on our walls in our house. The fruits of the Spirit, and yet like flying off the handle at our children over, well, for me, right? Shower water 
inch deep in the bathroom or whatever it might be, overflowing the toilet, right? Just like these like moments where it's like, gosh, of all the times to like incarnate the love of Christ, the patience of Christ should be with my children. And yet it's just a placard on my wall. That is evidence of a divided heart. I believe in kindness, gentleness, and all the fruits of the Spirit, but not with that person because, gosh, they just really rub me the wrong way. They're just too much for me right now. So normally I would be really gracious, but not today. I mean, it just is. It's just evidence of a divided heart. In these moments, we must preach to ourselves and remind ourselves of the kindness, grace, and love that God has shown to us. And may this override our hearts, not only to do what is right, but to do it with all of our being, bringing heart and body in line with what we profess. Again, what do we do? when we find that there is a disconnect between what we know to be right and true and what we actually want. Have you ever found that, like, you believe the right things, but you want the wrong things? Like, like, I know you're true, God. I know that Christianity is right. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But gosh, I do want to live the way the ungodly live. You know, Psalm 73 actually describes this. It's really interesting. The psalmist, I found this so fascinating. I was doing my studies. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, Psalm 73, this is so beautiful. Like, just talk to God about how you feel. (laughs) When you feel this division of heart and soul, mind and body, talk to God about it. And so I'm like, oh cool, yeah, yeah, yeah. Psalm 73, I'm writing all this down. You guys, I turned to Psalm 73 and I totally forgot how it begins. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is actually what the psalm is all about. The psalmist describes this division, this divided heart that he experiences. What is it? He says, oh, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But honestly, that's not me, he confesses. He proceeds to tell God honestly how he feels. I'm doing all the right things, and I feel miserable. Flourishing are the pure in heart? That's not me. And then he goes on to say, I see evil people, people or you know, just people that don't have any consideration of God. And what do I see with them? They're doing all the wrong, unjust, and immoral things, and they seem to be flourishing satisfied and at ease. God, what gives? And then the psalmist says this, then I went into the sanctuary. Remember, the sanctuary is a place where the Spirit, where God himself took up residence. Basically, what the psalmist is saying, God, then I got a vision of you. I saw you. And seeing you, reoriented my whole perspective. And the psalmist says, what I'm actually desiring underneath all my desire and my want is you. I think I want what the world wants. I think I want what's out there in the world. And so I've got this divided heart, but what I actually want, God, is you. I want your friendship. I want your love, your presence, because you are the source of all 
life and goodness. And I've got to read out loud this psalm because it's too good. The psalmist says, I am always with you. What's he talking about? He's talking about this intimate knowledge that God has of him. God, you see right through me. You've been with me from the beginning. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, it has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, through the psalmist's honest confession to God, he regained his perspective in God's presence, and it brought this unity of heart. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord. That's it. That's what my heart was created for. That's what my heart wants. God, unite my heart to fear your name then. Because you are the source of all life, all goodness, all beauty and truth. Lord, make my heart one to know you, to love you in return. Now, as we close up, what's the alternative to pursuing this wholeness and unity of being? C.S. Lewis, in an essay called Is Christianity Hard or Easy? from Mere Christianity, he likens religious people to moralists who are constantly trying to figure out a way to have their cake and cake, woo, have their cake, that's different, and eat it too. To live for God in order to get blessing or just some kind of life insurance kind of mentality, right? But still have some left over to use on themselves. And he says, by the way, this is the most miserable way to live out our Christianity. And in the end, it just makes you a bitter, entitled person. That's all it does. The opposite of flourishing. He says this, the Christian way is different. It's harder and easier. Christ says, give me all of you. I do not want so much of your time, so much of your talents and money, or so much of your work. I want you, all of you. I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't want only to prune a branch here and a branch there. Rather, I want the whole tree out, handed over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants and wishes and dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me, and I will make you a new self in my image. Give me yourself, and in exchange, I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. Now let's close talking just for a minute about the promise. Flourishing are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now throughout Christian history, this has been called the beatific vision, to see God. And it is seen to be the summit of all things, the zenith of glory, the greatest experience beyond anything in all time and space. 
And this is both the hope and promise of every follower of Jesus. That we shall look upon the face of God, the source and fountain of all life, love, beauty, goodness, and joy. Like the psalmist says, in your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures going on and on and on. You know, Scripture testifies to us that no one has seen, no one has heard, that it hasn't even entered into our imaginations the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. That what we suffer or sacrifice in this life cannot hold a candle to the far exceeding eternal weight of glory that awaits us. For we shall see Him who we were created for. And we shall experience the fullness of life and of joy that we have always longed for. Church, what if we actually lived as signs of the kingdom of God? What if we actually put into practice in our hearts, in our homes, in our work, around our neighbors, in our politics, this upside-down kingdom of God? You know, this unity and sincerity of person radically stands out in a world that is so divided and confused. I mean, what you see is not what you get. It's funny, you know, social media, whether it's TikTok, I know Instagram's out, right? It's not cool anymore. Don't talk about Facebook, whatever you do. Um, but just this whole idea of putting forward our best self, you know, and how many stories you hear of people being catfished, right? Like this, like, um, online profile identity is not actually who the person is. Can't even imagine what that is doing to our souls. And of course, what it's doing to our culture. We're constantly putting up masks, putting up the false self, hiding our true selves, our true motives and intentions. What a powerful witness and refreshment of a whole undivided human being to the world. A testimony to the beauty, power, and freedom of life in the kingdom of God that we are a people that are fully known and yet fully loved. That there is no hiding from our God. He sees the whole. He sees all of it. And what he wants to draw out is that hidden beauty that he has put within us because he has made us in his image, because he has redeemed us for the image of Christ. And he wants to draw that out. He wants to make us whole, unified individuals. And he wants, I believe, to put us on display to the world that they would see the flourishing people of God. And they would flock to Jesus, the gardener, and allow him to cultivate their lives for flourishing. Jesus, the master, says that this is the way of true flourishing. The question is, will we believe him? Will we take him at his word? Or will we justify ourselves? Will we say, well, I believe in practicing the Sermon on the Mount, but not in this context and not with this situation? Church, that is to put a barrier in the way of your own transformation. That will block up, hinder, stagnate the work that God wants to do first, primarily in you, 
to make you one who bears his image and lives out his own flourishing. And yes, it will absolutely hide your light from the rest of the world. Will we submit ourselves, give the whole of ourselves, undivided devotion, the whole of our being to Jesus the Master? I pray that we will.